0: From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we're exploring perspectives about sex and popular media. Where is it gone? Why might audience relationships with intimacy on screen be different now than,
1: say, 20 years ago? What exactly is necessary in art? Is is art itself even necessary? If you go to a really, really strict definition of necessary, it's probably not necessary to go to the movies at all. It's not necessary for me to watch Godzilla stomp around on Japan, but it's an experience, and I find it very striking that, is this sex scene necessary, is discourse, and we don't see that discourse on any other kind of scene. We'll hear from R.S. Benedict about what she sees as a largely sexless cinema
0: post-9-11, and then Zachary Wigan talks about his new psychosexual thriller, Sanctuary. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. I don't remember what I was seeing, but I remember the experience of sitting in a theater when the trailer for Basic Instinct 2 played.
1: Her prints were all over the crime scene. We haven't got a case, Roy. Well, just make one. We'll order a psychiatrist to say she's a danger.
0: Gotta make sure we get somebody good and tough. Dr. Glass, this is Catherine Trino. So is this where we're going to do it? You're a writer, what do you write
1: about? Oh, the sexual, the violent, the basic instincts.
0: Sorry you're not allowed to smoke in here.
1: You know what I like about you? You enjoy being in control, like me.
0: I'm not the one who's on trial for murder.
1: Not yet.
0: When Sharon Stone got into the iconic pose from the first movie, spreading her legs, the audience went crazy, which maybe is weird, I don't know, but I do know that it didn't feel bizarre to see something like that in a movie theater. I think of intimacy on screen in two genres that seemed huge when I was growing up, but now are increasingly rare. The erotic thriller and the romantic comedy. At the same time, critics like Alexandra Schwartz have posited that shows like Euphoria and Bridgerton Are examples of sex migrating from the big screen to the small? That general audience tolerance is somehow different for TV and streaming than in movies now. But why? Today's show is an exploration into the role of sex in popular culture, notable trends in recent decades. What should the role of intimacy be in storytelling? Are sex scenes unnecessary, gratuitous, slowing down the plot? Are they the plot? Is that vulnerability and passion essential to bringing humanity onto our screens? There's a long history in Hollywood of debates on where exactly the line should be, if anywhere at all. From the scandal of Pandora's box in 1929, to the enforcement of the Hays Code in the 1930s, censoring most of the sexual content that came before. And then came the post-war period, largely inspired by European movies like And God Created Woman or Belle de Jour, where the erotic, the sensual, and the trashy went mainstream in American cinema again. Anne Hornaday, chief film critic at the Washington Post, writes that the 1980s and the early 1990s were a heyday of sex scenes that might have been hot and heavy, but stayed within the parameters of bourgeois good taste. Movies such as An Officer and a Gentleman, Body Heat, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Attraction, and Basic Instinct were must-see films, not just because of their twisty plots, but because of sex scenes that were frank and artfully staged. But then by the 2010s, even with hit shows on TV full of racy content like Game of Thrones, The Guardian reported that the amount of sexuality in movies has declined to the lowest point since the 1960s. And in a UCLA study last fall, a majority of the surveyed 1,500 adolescents said they wanted less romantic content in TV and movies. A near majority said sex is not necessary and that romance is overused in entertainment. What should we make of this? Is this as Doreen St. Felix has speculated? a result of the decline of the so-called mid-budget adult drama, or what Naomi Fry calls the very lucrative infantilization of the viewing public?
2: How? Yes, of course. Come in. Nice place. Is this the bathroom?
0: This needs to be cleaned. Where does this leave movies that go against the grain, such as Zachary Wiggins' recent psychosexual thriller, Sanctuary? When you think of yourself, what do you see? Garbage? Oh, yes. You weren't.
2: I really liked that scene.
3: Me too. It's going to be so weird to not have this as part of my routine anymore. What do you mean? You know this job. Your new role at the company? A CEO. Yeah, it's a really big deal. This is not a good idea to keep doing this. How? Your new job, you wouldn't be able to do it without what I taught you. What do you want? Half of the salary for the job that I got you.
2: You're insane. It
3: would be a story. CEO material pays a woman to spit on him and call him a pervert. Denver dominatrix
2: tells all. I mean, when you say it like that, it makes it sound weird.
0: I spoke with one of the researchers from UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers, Stephanie Rivas Lara, about the scope and implications of their research. Your study was in a lot of headlines, and headlines often look for uh, the, the big, most dramatic way of framing things. So I thought it might be useful just to sort of walk through some of the elements of the study itself from your perspective. So let's just start with what was the scope of your research in the study?
3: Yeah, so uh, this, our Teens and Screens report from 2023, we surveyed 1,500 young people ages 10 to 24 with around 100 young people from each age bracket, so 110-year-olds, 111-year-olds, and so on and so forth. And the respondents closely reflected the U.S. 2020 Census in race and gender. And the overall aim of this study essentially was to get a better understanding of what adolescents want to see in media, what they wish to see more of, what they believe feels more authentic to them and why. So that pretty much encompasses what this study was trying to get at.
0: Adolescence is a word that uh, people use. You said it goes all the way up to 24-year-olds, though. How, how did you define adolescent?
3: Yeah, so we defined adolescent uh, similarly to how the National Academy of Sciences define adolescent, which is Folks uh, within the age range of 10 to 24.
0: How did the results either align or not with your general expectations as you started to do this research?
3: That's such a great question. Yeah, I t- really try not to have any expectations going in when it comes to research. Um, but what's so amazing about this research, in particular at the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, is that we have a team called the Youth Media Representation Program or YMR, where REP EP in representation stands for Research, Expression and Public Engagement. Um, I myself manage that team and it's full of adolescents, you know, Gen Z, um, who we work with all the time within CSS. And each cohort does research on various different topics in the entertainment industry. And one that caught our eye particularly was focused on the show Wednesday and Heartstopper and the portrayals of social relationships within those two shows. And particularly with the show of Wednesday, there was um, a particular insight surrounding a fan outcry discussion about the character Wednesday being in a love triangle. And that really sparked our interest in exploring more about relationships in general within for our teens and screen study. But we really had no idea what we would find um, going into the, the research itself.
0: The outcry was that she was in a love triangle and viewers didn't want her to be? Or what, what was the nature of that?
3: Yeah, so essentially the, the nature of that and the discussion we've had with the, the teens from our program is that there was really a lot of mm, tension, per se, of people not really being particularly happy about the forced love triangle that was happening with the character of Wednesday and the two male interests in the show. Um, And that they really felt that it wasn't really necessary for, A, the show Wednesday in and of itself, and B, even the plot of the show either. So um, the portrayal of that relationship or the to-be relationship, lack of relationship, um, was really what sparked a lot of that conversation about the portrayals of relationships in the media, which then led to us expanding that within our Teens and screens research.
0: So the way that I've seen it framed uh, in headlines that talk about this research, this study, is that young audiences are increasingly averse to sex and romance in media. Do you think that's a fair characterization of what you found?
3: Uh, no, it, it's, I don't think that young audiences are increasingly averse to sex in media is a fair characterization. I think some of the headlines are pretty sensational in and of itself. Um, The truth is, is that adolescents just want to see a fuller spectrum of relationships on screen, not just particularly focused on sex and romance. Um, They pretty much feel that sex and romance are often used as a sort of shortcut to character development. And instead, they want to see more about um, all kinds of different relationships represented um, instead of the same old romantic trope, so you know, more of a focus on platonic relationships that are healthy and authentic in in media.
0: So I don't know exactly if this was part of what you found or if it's something that would need to sort of be aligned in other research, further research. But do you think that the the particular trends that you're tracking are they unique to younger viewers, or do you think it would be something that could be found in older viewers as well?
3: That's also an awesome question. Um, you know, a lot of our focus ends up being within the adolescent age ranges. Um, But I also just wouldn't be surprised if this trend also would kind of lay over into adult viewers as well. I think particularly, especially after the COVID epidemic, um, the COVID-19 epidemic and the stay at home orders, I think there is a lot of loneliness and isolation that came about that, that I think made a lot of people feel very much isolated. And seeing as like media is a huge part of mostly everybody's lives, I think that same tread could be seen for adults as well as adolescents.
0: Is, is this something you want to continue to research? Are there further research questions that you're pursuing?
3: Yeah, this is definitely something that we want to continue researching, especially getting more at the idea of why. Um, I mean, our hypothesis about, you know, COVID-19 pandemic creating a lot of like isolation, which is why folks wanna see more relationships, platonic and just diverse relationships in general in the media. Um, that's one of our my hypotheses. Um, myself and the other Gen Z author, Hiro Kotecha, that was one of our hypotheses, but it would be really interesting to really dive in deeper into why exactly adolescents want to see more of this sort of topic represented on screen as well. So it's definitely something that we're, we're looking into.
0: That was Stephanie Rivas Lara, a researcher at UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers. Later in the show, I'll talk with Sanctuary Director Zachary Wiggin about making Sanctuary in the current media landscape. But first, we'll hear from R.S. Benedict, whose essay, Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny, seeks to diagnose just what is going on with the characters who populate our content in the post-9-11 world. That's after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. In today's show, we're exploring the role of sex in our popular culture. Why is there less intimacy on screen now than there has been in the past several decades? How has the media of the past generation influenced our standards for content today? And what do we do with shows like Euphoria or The Idol in the middle of all of this? To try to make sense of the realignment we're seeing, I spoke with R.S. Benedict, whose work has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Blood Knife, Broad Knowledge, among others. She's perhaps most well-known for an essay she wrote called Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny, which tries to connect several dots in explaining how sex and culture have shifted in the post-9-11 world. So in, in your essay, there's a bunch of great phrases and lines, some of which I can't say on public radio, but I <laughs> wish I could to quote them to you. But you write that... Um, in the films of the 80s and 90s, leading actors were good-looking, yes, but still human. Uh, and more importantly, though, you described them as characters who radiate overwhelming sex-haver energy. So <laughs> I thought maybe we could start with that. What
1: does that mean, and why is that important? Well, something I really wanted to talk about in that essay wasn't necessarily that these films have sex scenes, although a lot of them do, but it's more of an attitude or an ambiance. Like, when when the idea of sexuality is, is discussed, there's a sense of, there's chemistry between the actors. There's a sense of desire. They look like real people. And I remember more recently watching, I think it was Ant-Man. And there's a bit where the two leads are flirting and I just don't feel anything between them. They're, they're good looking. I mean, Paul Rudd had these amazing shredded abs, but he just, it felt like watching someone rub a pair of Barbie dolls together, I just didn't feel anything. Like, if, if you told me that neither character had genitalia, I would believe you. And, and I, I think that was what was missing from, from a lot of the Marvel cinematic universe that was present in a lot of 1980 stuff. It's this sense of desire or realism or, or grit or sweat or just humanity, uh, the biological existence of these actors, of these characters, that's just not present when everyone's a little too perfect and everyone's a little too sculpted.
0: Since you brought up Marvel, uh, I, I work with someone who is a big Marvel fan, and I only say that slightly pejoratively, but uh, he was telling <laughs> me how he saw Oppenheimer with his new girlfriend, and I think it was the girlfriend's parents, and he was he was telling me that he was mortified to have to sit with them through the sex scene. And my my response to that was kind of multifaceted. Uh, it was like a multifaceted head scratch because, A, Oppenheimer may have the least erotic sex scenes I've ever seen. But also, B, <laughs> I don't know what to make of the fact that a movie which is all about the inevitable horror of power abuse and apocalypse that's inevitable, you know, it, that that could be less shocking than the fact that there was nudity briefly is something I, I struggle to wrap my mind around. And I think it is maybe an example of shifting attitudes that people have when they go to a movie. What what do you make of the changing attitudes
1: people have with sex on screen? I I do think it is a little strange just because I am old enough to remember when it was normal and now it's not. And people get a little bit shocked and I can understand feeling a little embarrassed if you're at the theater with your mom, but like get over it. You are alive on this earth because your mother had sex at least once. So Get over it. That's all I can say. And it's, and and I find it a little sad that that people would criticize that in Oppenheimer because. Oppenheimer, the man's infidelities, his his inability to be faithful to his wife and to respect the marriages of his colleagues was a huge part of his real life and kind of a part of his character and his inability to really stay faithful to one belief system, one ideology. He kind of flirts with leftism, but is never really into it. He flirts with this idea, that idea with pacifism, but is never really dedicated to any of it. So it fits who he is as a person so perfectly well. And and the scenes aren't even really like crazy or or anything like that. They're they're really not. They're incredibly tame. Well, and I I
0: think what I see, you know, like I've seen polls on Twitter occasionally where people will say, "What's the most unnecessary sex scene?" or something like that. And Oppenheimer will be in there, and there'll be other movies. And there's kind of this default assumption that sex does not relate to plot, or it's always gratuitous, or there's always something bad about it uh, that should be skipped over out of some kind of ethical imperative. And I don't I don't really know. What to make of that? Where, where, where does that idea come from?
1: I do find it odd because in some ways, well, what, what exactly is necessary in art? Is, is art itself even necessary? Like, Is it necessary for us to watch the movie Oppenheimer and not just read his biography or watch a documentary about it? Is it necessary to show people eating in movies? We we can assume that they're eating food because they're still alive. Is it necessary to show an action sequence? Why not just fade to black and then tell us who won the fight, right? Like if you, if you go to a really, really strict definition of necessary, it's probably not necessary to go to the movies at all. It's not necessary for me to watch Godzilla stomp around on Japan, but it's an experience. And, it is part of the experience, and and I find it very striking that is this sex scene necessary? Is discourse, and we don't see that discourse on any other kind of scene. Like I've seen so many people talk about how much they love scenes in uh, Studio Ghibli films, Miyazaki movies, where the characters eat. Well, is that necessary? Is it necessary to watch this character eat ramen noodles? Probably not, but it's it's lovely. It's nice. I don't know, necessity for plot is something that I see as
0: kind of a driving feature of some of the Christopher Nolan movies, ironically. Like, I think you you have a line in in your essay about Inception in particular, which seems kind of oddly sexless for a a movie about subconsciouses. Um, And he's someone who seems like he's got a, a fairly functional approach to the way he tells a story. And so it's almost more interesting and ironic to me that then when he does explore some of these more I don't know these these angles that he might not have looked at in some of his earlier movies by just having sexuality be an element of Oppenheimer that there's a pushback to it. And I don't, I don't know. again it's it's kind of a head scratcher for me and you in your attempt to start to contextualize it you say that a lot of this has to do with sort of the culture post 9/11 and I wonder if we could maybe start to bridge that gap. How
1: how do we how does 9/11 factor into any of this? Right. I I'm not sure if this is a stretch but I did notice that this post 9/11 culture we started talking in a really militaristic way about fitness and I'm never not going to pretend that it was perfect. I mean, I remember the nineties when heroin chic was the desirable look for girls. So I'm not going to say, Oh, we, we had a great attitude toward human bodies before nine 11, obviously not. But post nine 11, there was this real anxiety about is our, is our national body strong enough to fight the war on terror. And I remember in my old high school, there a lot of students protested because we had the military recruiters come in and do this special gym class where they're having people rehearse like throwing grenades and doing all these sort of military drills. And, and there were students who said, hey, this is just military propaganda. Don't make us do this in gym class. I don't want to join the military. I don't want to go to war. And as we're getting nervous about military recruitment, there was a lot of panic about soldiers, uh, Americans being too fat to sign up for military service to fight the war on terror. There was this really, really big panic about the obesity epidemic. And at that time, our, our attitudes about bodies and what a body should be, I noticed started being a lot more about like strong, 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 but not strong to show off your your muscles because, hey, I, I lift weights too. I love it. I love being able to flex. It feels great when someone compliments your biceps, but being strong about like being able to fight, like instead of talking about working out, we're talking about like training. And I noticed that a lot of gyms classes will call themselves boot camp like you're getting ready for for war, like booty boot camp. Like is is there a booty war that we're currently fighting? What country is this? I I have many questions. So it, it seemed very tied to nine-eleven, and there is a history of countries when they're anxious, when we have these national anxieties about are we strong enough as a nation? A lot of that translates into our physical fitness ideals, our obsession with physical fitness and what a body should look like. We saw it a lot. Also, I think in 1930s America, the 1920s ideal American body was very, very skinny and waifish. It was about doing the Charleston and going to parties and not really eating much. And then suddenly in the 30s, when like the Second World War is heating up, suddenly like it's all about the muscle, the muscle, the muscle, getting these big, strong athletic bodies. And I think it was because on a certain level we understood we needed to be in fight and shape.
0: Well, it's a little counterintuitive, isn't it, though? Like, wouldn't you imagine that as people are sculpting their bodies, they still would be interested in sexuality? Why is it
1: that the two don't seem to correspond here? I mean, in in film, I I think a lot of it is what the, these bodies are in service of we have this very odd puritanical attitude in America where violence is okay but sexuality is wrong so that idea in in movies that bodies are kind of for violence I think that ties very well to the fact that the the MCU is a Disney thing and Disney just doesn't really deal with human sexuality that much that's just not a part of their brand um so that's part of it and and I also think at least, As people, we're a lot more of an isolated, kind of lonely, negative toward each other society. Everything's about personal improvement and improve yourself, improve yourself, improve yourself to the point where other people, including human relationships, are kind of negative. Like something that really surprises me about uh, gym rat men is that they're getting really big to impress other heterosexual men. It's not to impress women. They don't even seem to care what women actually want a man to look like. It's about gaining status among other men. So you have these men making themselves exhausted, injecting themselves with all kinds of hormones to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not even making them happy. It's, it's not even getting them girlfriends. There's a, there's a term that I've heard, gym cell. It's like men who are so obsessed with working out and going to the gym and getting muscles that like maybe it starts off thinking, okay, I'm going to get in good shape so that girls like me. And then they just get addicted to the gym and they spend all their time in the gym and don't actually go out and talk to girls. Why, why wouldn't they want to talk to girls though? It's just like the rewiring of priorities entirely? Kind of. There's there's this great article that I read. I, I can't remember the title. I can't remember the author originally, but it's the title was called something like so straight you're gay where there's this alpha male mentality which is that a man has to be so complete and perfect and you know need nothing and be this lone wolf to the point where if you admit you want women to like you then that's kind of unmanly it's kind of embarrassing like an alpha male can't admit that you you fall in love with a woman because when you're falling in love, you are vulnerable. You are say, you are taking this part of yourself and giving it to someone else and saying, like, I'm opening myself vulnerable to you, a woman. And like, uh-oh, a real man's not supposed to do that. So it almost seems like admitting that you want girls to like you, doing things so that girls might be attracted to you is, is unmasculine. So it, it really kind of sticks men into this unfortunate trap where where being a man, a big part of manliness, is getting women, but actually caring about what women think and recognizing women's agency to the point where you say, Well, I wanna look really good so that women feel attracted to me is unmasculine. It it really keeps men in I, I think in this really unfair, sad trap that makes them lonelier.
0: This makes me think about, in the context of your piece, would you say that it's a phenomenon among the art that is made by men? Well, a lot of these trends that you're noticing as opposed to by women. And I know that's complicated by which studio will hire men or women and what the dictates of a franchise will be. But is, is it is art made by women trending differently than what you
1: were writing about? Hmm, I mean, that's kind of tricky. I, yeah, I mean, when it comes to studios – that is that is such a difference in between who has creative control. I think when it's when individual creatives have more control, they tend to engage with sexuality a lot more. Like I, I'll notice that, returning to Nolan, I get the feeling that he had a lot more creative control when he was making Oppenheimer. He managed to make this big studio movie about Oppenheimer, which is. Not something that our contemporary studios seem like they'd be really interested in. Normally he does these franchise movies, you know, Batman and stuff like that. So the fact that he had more creative control, I think, meant that he felt the freedom to engage with it personally. I I think it's a little bit more about do individual creators have that kind of freedom and power, not so much the gender of them. When I think
0: about what people have written about the, what it's kind of framed as a decline of sex in movies generally, or at least mainstream ones, um, one thing that came up in a, a roundtable discussion from the New Yorker was Naomi Fry had, uh, she talked about how TV might be the exception, or maybe it's that what people used to be comfortable with in terms of vulnerability and sexuality in movies has migrated to TV. Um, and the way that she wrote it uh, was, you get the sense that cinema has become for children and TV has become for adults. And its role is as the bearer of adult values and preoccupations and activities grounded in increasingly explicit explicit sexual relationships, including stuff in the past that would have never happened or rarely happened. Uh, what do you think about TV? Does that fit into similar trends or is it
1: usurping the role that sex maybe had for movies in the 90s? I think there's definitely something to be said about that you're also working in television generally with a lower budget. So there's a little more freedom to play around and take risks than there would be in a, in a big budget movie. I I do feel like I do see a trend of event movies as, as the MCU is kind of petering out and these huge, super expensive movies are kind of petering out. I am noticing a little bit more in, in the cinema that is engaging with sexuality. I mean, poor things, was all about it. The main character ends up working in a brothel for a huge section of the movie. Uh, So I do think we do, I'm seeing a trend where it is coming back a little bit, which is, which is encouraging. What do you attribute that to? I think a lot of it is just blockbusters got so big and bloated and expensive to the point where they had to keep making more and more and more and more and more money it just became unsustainable. We've had so many flops of these huge blockbuster movies that maybe a couple of years ago would have been really, really big. And I'm wondering if studios are thinking about switching to more of a a mid budget model or, or sort of smaller budgets where you can take a little bit more risk and maybe this one will pay off. Maybe this one won't, but I, I think just the structure of how we're making movies, how we're funding movies is changing a little bit. And, I I think it's changing for the better.
0: Another thing that's kind of interesting is younger people are going to be making things and are starting to make things. I think about some of the young directors, um, like Emma Seligman's made Shiva Baby. She's made Bottoms. And these are movies that certainly acknowledge sexuality. They make that a big part of the texture of the movies. I wonder what it will mean to some of these young filmmakers, because we sort of like, as you said, there's sort of the, the UCLA study. It's a little bit unclear what exactly to take away from it. If we're presenting it all as sort of like young people don't want sex in movies, they don't want that kind of intimacy, the next question will be, well, what do they actually do
1: when they get in charge and they get
0: to take the wheel? What, what do you
1: predict? I, I have no idea what Gen Z will even do. I I think – I mean – I th- I think they'll explore it in cinema – I absolutely do. Some of my favorite up and coming filmmakers, I don't know if you'd call them young, are very much interested in engaging with sexuality. One of the filmmakers I'm most excited about right now is Ty West. I I guess he's not Gen Z, but he's new. And I mean, his movie X was a film, a horror movie about pornography. And he's like one of the most promising horror directors. Granted, I'm looking in the horror genre, which is pretty different from mainstream. (laughs) Um, but I, I, I think we're a little too quick to completely give up on Gen Z. I think we're a little too quick th- to raise the white flag and say like, oh, no, Gen Z, no one in it will ever have sex ever. I don't think that's going to happen.
0: It's funny because I think everyone always wants to do that, right? They always want to say that the kids are, they're, to- they're yeah. so messed up. They're not going to talk to each other. They're not going to make anything. They're not going to feel things. We sort of just, you know, ruined humanity. I guess that's, that's kind of an evergreen thought.
1: Yeah, it is. I Like, there There are absolutely, there is an increase in, I think, loneliness and isolation for a lot of reasons in in this country, but I don't think it's going to be 100% across the board, and I don't think it's going to be completely permanent because we are still human beings. You mentioned
0: poor things. Are there any recent movies that you watched that you thought were uh, some good signs that
1: maybe the, the trends of your essay might not be taking hold? The fact that we brought up oppenheimer at all i think it itself that it it was this really really big event like this was a huge huge event that dealt with human sexuality i think that in it itself is a really encouraging sign that christopher nolan whose movies tend to be very celibate actually dealt with the topic i think that's a really big sign and also honestly Barbie, I know there's not really a scene in it, but it engages with the concept of human sexuality. Like, there, there is a scene in which the main character explains very plainly that she does not have genitalia. And the very last scene in the movie, I don't know if, well, everyone's seen it by now, so I might as well give it away, is her going to a gynecologist's office. So it is engaging with the topic of human sexuality in, in a way that I think... I I can't imagine that happening in an MCU movie or in in like, I can't imagine a scene in which, I don't know, Wonder Woman goes to a gynecologist office. We're not going to, we would not have seen this in a movie like five, ten years ago. So I am seeing really encouraging signs in mainstream movies.
0: R.S. Benedict's substack is called the most dangerous newsletter if you want to find more of her work. After the break, I'm talking with Zachary Wigan, director of the 2023 psychosexual thriller Sanctuary, a movie that goes up against most of the trends we've been talking about so far. Stay tuned. And welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. In today's show, we're exploring the role of sex and media over the past few decades, from the erotic thriller to the romantic comedy and everything in between. Right between those two genres lies an interesting new film called Sanctuary.
2: There's a camera hidden in this hotel suite.
3: I don't don't want to play right now. I'm not. You filmed
2: our session secretly? job
3: but if i wanted to i can get rid of you look at you you love this are you excited
2: you don't have the power i do what, the
0: what do you want i unlock something
2: in you no sanctuary sanctuary the safe word the sanctuary
1: do you even know why you're doing this or is this just the game
0: yes oh! look at me. Don't look at me. Sorry. Starring Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley, the movie follows the disaster that ensues when a wealthy client decides it's time to grow up and stop seeing his dominatrix. Confined to a single hotel room, the movie shifts tones and genres consistently, so you're never quite comfortable or able to predict where it's going. Something totally unlike the many big releases that favor familiarity and comforts of genre. I spoke with Wigan about how the movie came to be and what he sees as its place in the current cinematic landscape. I want to start with the the concept of genre because I think Sanctuary is an interesting movie as far as that goes, as far as the marketing goes, as far as the different genres it's playing with. So let me just ask you, before we even get into the specifics about Sanctuary, do you think people are a little too obsessed with genres, with classifications?
2: I think there are as many different ways to interpret and engage with cinema as there are people who exist. (laughs) So I don't know that I would say that people are are necessarily too obsessed with genre. I think that it's a way, it's a very effective way for some people to find their way into cinema. What I think appeals about genre to certain viewers is There's something of like a contract with the audience that exists with genre. When you, you know, pay for your ticket to go see a genre movie, you're paying for that ticket with the understanding that you're going to have a certain kind of experience and your level of satisfaction is going to coincide to a certain degree with how effectively that movie um, fills its side of the bargain, serves its side of the bargain. So I wouldn't say that people are necessarily too obsessed with genre. I think, uh, I'm assuming that where you're going with the question <laughs> is that this is certainly a movie that, that plays with different genres and combines different genres. That's something that's absolutely exciting to me. Um, but I think that there's both a place in cinema for films that are, you know, kind of like quite in the box genre movies and then there's also a great place in cinema for films that are picking elements from different genres, recombining them, creating their own sort of you know, pastiches uh, into something new, turning them into something new.
0: It's kind of a paradox to some extent, right? Because people, in theory, they like to not know where something's going, to go on a ride that surprises them, that they can't predict. And yet, I think a lot of the time when people are scrolling through the streaming service or even buying a ticket – they're picking the genres that they know they like, right? Which is, to some extent, that familiarity is the appeal as well. And so with Sanctuary, did you set out to try to make something that could at times be familiar but also difficult to pin down?
2: No. Um, The reason being, I don't tend to work from the outside in so much in terms of those kinds of conceptions. I can certainly understand how someone could come to the film and view it that way and have that kind of um, takeaway from it. But for me, I tend to be more thinking about the characters, the story, what's interesting about this, what feels new about this, what's strange and fascinating about this. Um, And I am hoping and trusting that my sensibility and what's interesting to me on a kind of like intuitive viewer level will speak to some of the the questions that you're – some of the ideas that you're talking about in the way that you're framing the question.
0: When you say that then, where you're following the characters, but the movie kind of has its segments, right, where the first one – the first part when they're doing their, their role play is something that has kind of one energy and then it switches to something more comfortable and then it gets less comfortable. It does feel like uh, the structure makes sense for the characters, but also it's able to inhabit these different energies that – Often are kind of, you get comfortable with one sense and then it pulls the rug out from under you, just as what's happening with the characters. So is it all kind of mirroring the character's mentality? Is that how it gets segmented as you're putting the movie together?
2: I would say that the goal of the movie in certain ways, one of the things that was interesting to me was take a complex and sophisticated relationship and because the physical um, setting of the film is relatively simple. You've got two characters in one location for the entire duration. You, you always want to have complexity in a movie in some way, right? Like you're going to want to have a certain level of complexity in order for people to feel like they've been um, like they've been stimulated. Like it's been emotionally interesting, intellectually interesting. So If you have a relatively simple physical setup, you want to have complexity in some other form. And the opportunity that this premise provided was psychological complexity. So one of the things that was interesting to me was, can we go through the story and have every different permutation of how this relationship between these two characters might play out? Can we have every permutation of the relationship happen right in front of us over the course of the movie. So it's almost like you're, you're excavating. You're going deeper and deeper into their psyches, and you're looking at all these different ways that the dynamic between the two of them could exist. Um, that was fascinating to me.
0: What were some of the models you had? Were you looking at certain movies that you thought did that well in the past?
2: Uh, not particularly. When I was talking about the, the movie in the beginning, when Micah and I were talking about the story and working out the plot, we definitely talked a lot about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is one of the interesting examples of a film that is going very deep into character psychology, giving you a lot of different looks at dynamics.
1: For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready a minute, to retire. Martha. And we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. I you want. I
0: wouldn't go on with this if I were you.
1: No, oh, you wouldn't, would you? Would you not?
0: You've already sprung a leak
1: about you know what. What? What? About the sprout, the little bugger, our son. If you start in on this other business, Martha, I warn you. I stand
2: warned. Like What's interesting about, I think, these kinds of movies is with an action movie, your, your sort of set piece, your entertainment could come from a car chase, right? Or a shootout or whatever. With these kinds of movies, which tend to be about people talking in a room or in rooms, the action tends to come from the ways in which the dynamic shifts and the psychology and the emotional situation shifts. It feels like you're on stable ground and then all of a sudden you're not and you've gone somewhere else. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a great example of a film where the dynamic is always shifting and it almost takes on the tension of a great thriller because you're so dialed into the characters and you're so dialed into their dynamic, whatever it is, that as soon as the dynamic shifts, it creates this enormous sense of suspense. Um, so that was definitely a reference point for sure when we were talking about the story, breaking the story in the beginning.
0: Well, that, that makes me think about the elements of genre too because some of the styles are – they're coherent with some of the different genre turns. And I know if I recall correctly when I saw the trailer um, in theaters, it, it was marketed sort of like an erotic thriller – But then there was at least one blurb I saw that called it a romantic comedy. And there's not a lot of movies that can bring those two together. Although as I was preparing for this, I thought there is a little bit of overlap there. So I guess as far as juggling tones, styles, genres, how do you know how far you can bend it without it breaking?
2: I think that those kind of decisions tend to be made intuitively. I I tend not to – I tend in terms of directing decisions, most of it – uh, honestly, I, I try to just, um, <laughs> you know, meditate basically and, and clear my head. And then, you know, you're sort of thinking about it. And ideally, you get an intuitive sense of how it's going to look and sound and feel on screen. And you sort of allow those decisions. What fe- it, it, it's quite, for me, it's very much a gut thing. You just kind of go with what feels right. I know that's uh I wish I had a more <laughs> articulate answer. But what I will say to, to speak to the, the larger point that you're raising, because I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, I've always felt like there was a lot of connective tissue between the screwball comedy and the erotic thriller or psychosexual thriller. Um, like if you think about, for example, like uh, I like I love the old screwball comedies, like His Girl Friday and, and Bringing a Baby. But if you look at the behavior in those movies, I mean they do a lot of things to one another in those movies that are objectively awful. <laughs> right? I mean there's there's a lot of awful behavior in those films, but it's played for laughs. And then likewise, you know, certainly, you know, with an erotic thriller or a psychosexual thriller, um, if things aren't played the right way, something can come off as, as comic. And so I was thinking about when we were developing the script and, and as this was, was moving into moving toward production, I was thinking of it almost like um, a hidden tunnel between those two genres. This wasn't where I started because I know earlier you were asking about was, was there a conception to sort of play with genre. It didn't start that way. But at a certain point, I was thinking it almost feels like there's a, a hidden tunnel between the psychosexual thriller and the screwball comedy. And maybe the film can sort of exist in that in-between space. And that was interesting to me.
0: As far as that goes, though, just in in your process, uh, you know you have these great actors. You know, They've been great in things for forever. Um, They are people who are able to express so much. And knowing if they will play off each other in that exact right energy, that exact right chemistry that you need when so much of the movie is them – looking at each other, talking to each other, not talking to each other, whatever it might be. Uh, What was it like for you to know that they could bring what this movie needed? Because if you don't have the exact right chemistry, even with two great actors, something like this could fall apart.
2: A hundred percent. Well, we were enormously fortunate to get Margaret and Chris. They're both, you know, just exceptionally, exceptionally talented. And in addition to both of them being as talented as they are, their performance styles are enormously complementary. um margaret has this kind of uh very quick almost like whipsaw fast electric guitar kind of quality to her um and chris has this very very deep very grounded there's almost this kind of like seismic quality to him where he's doing one thing on the surface but you can see all the other levels and layers of the character sort of resting and hiding underneath what he's projecting on the surface. So it's really interesting. Their energies in the film are almost completely opposite. Margaret's energy feels like this very kind of fast horizontal energy. Chris's energy feels like this very kind of a uh, grounded vertical energy. And so that's the way that I was conceptualizing it. And I think, uh, you know, we, we, I think chemistry when it works, of course, You need fantastic actors. And then in addition to fantastic actors, yeah, you you also need screen uh, presences that are different. Um, You need opposites, right? It doesn't really work if two actors have the same sort of on-screen quality.
0: Is this something that you can tell without putting them in the room together? Or do you have to do like a chemistry test?
2: What we did with this was uh, there was no chemistry test. I had seen much of Margaret's work and I'd seen much of Chris's work and actually funnily enough, they knew each other. They were friends and they had been looking to do something together. So just having seen their work, I had the feeling that their energies were going to match up in a really nice complimentary way. Um, And then that, that turned out to be the case. So, you know, when you're, when you're casting, you're, you're sort of thinking about it almost like musical instruments, right? And you want, two different instruments and two complementary instruments. So a lot of it is really watching the actor's prior work, thinking about how they're going to play the role broadly, because of course, it's always exciting to be surprised. And I was surprised all the time when we were making this. Um, But having a general sense of the kind of like musical quality that each actor is going to bring to it, that's, uh, that's what's necessary for me.
0: So I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into the opening beats, but uh, when I, as I said, when I saw this in theaters, what I was thinking was, okay, so it's an erotic thriller of some sort or psychosexual thriller. But then, just in the the first couple of pieces of the the music, and then the titles, the colors of the title cards, they they evoked uh, punch drunk love for me. Is that anything that was on your mind? Uh, punch drunk love was
2: not directly on my mind while I was conceptualizing that. But I think it's a, a love, I mean, it's a fantastic film and it's a very welcome, I mean, if if someone watches the film and that comes to mind, I absolutely welcome that. What I was thinking about uh, with those inner titles and the opening sort of color field sequence, especially in that opening color field, it was almost the idea of sort of bringing the audience into something that feels a little bit you kind of want to let them pass into something that almost feels like it could be a fairy tale. There's a little bit of, at the beginning of a movie, something that appeals to me is, okay, forget where you parked the car, forget what you have to do tomorrow, just let it all go. We're going to go somewhere new. And the inner titles, the color fields at the beginning in particular, were my way of trying to tell you that and also establish a particular tone, which is kind of dreamy, kind of surreal, a bit fairy tale, um, a bit strange and wondrous. Uh, it's a great opportunity to sort of set a stylistic template that the movie's going to follow.
0: It was not the tone that I expected from those first beats. And so it, it immediately told me that, OK, we're going to go in some directions that are not like the stereotypical sort of uh, erotic through, like, you know, like something like basic instinct doesn't start with this broad range of feelings. It kind of starts with like, all right, we're in mystery, dark territory, and that's where we'll kind of be the whole time. And y- it seems like you wanted to, not, not warn exactly, but you wanted to give a sense that this movie has a, a broader emotionality and a broader range of tones. Just from the you know, first five seconds, uh, you'll have to wait a little bit to get there, but it felt like, okay, be prepared for something that's maybe a little bit more complicated than uh, some of the advertising
2: Well, that's a really interesting point, and I hadn't considered it consciously, but now just talking with you about it and thinking about it, and that's why it's so interesting to talk about something that you've worked on. You sort of see it from a different perspective, because a lot of these decisions are sort of something that makes sense to you intuitively, but talking about it with you, there is this idea that when a movie starts, you have the audience in a position that it's not gonna happen at any other point in the film, which is any, like the lights go down, the screen is dark, absolutely anything could happen. And so it's this very good opportunity to sort of let the audience know in a very direct, clear way, this is the universe that we're in. And you can make a kind of, you can make an aesthetic statement at the beginning of a movie that is both specific in terms of like what aesthetic decisions you're making, but it's also kind of sweeping, right? Because there's no story that you have to support in that opening moment. You're, you're not you're not limited by having to serve as a story beat, as the storyteller. So you're totally at 30,000 feet and it gives you this unique opportunity to kind of paint with a broad brush. Hey guys, this is what it's gonna feel like atmospherically. This is the universe that we're in. And that is something that, Makes sense when I think about the opening of the film as an intention. It's always fascinating when there's a decision that you make from a kind of intuitive artistic place. You hope that it will resonate with people. And, you know, when you're making that decision artistically, you almost want to sort of like tell yourself, this feels right. I'm going to do it. And if you don't investigate it too far as the director, It's always very interesting how things come back to you and people respond to it in certain ways, in different ways. There's something about making a decision that's aesthetically or stylistically resonant where if you don't investigate it too far, I think it can appeal to lots of different people in lots of different ways. And that's one of the really exciting things about making movies and, and storytelling.
0: That was Zachary Wiggin, whose new movie Sanctuary, the psychosexual thriller slash screwball comedy, is now streaming on Hulu and Canopy. As we bring this episode to a close, here's some music from a movie that came up in the conversation with Zachary Wiggin, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love. Keep the conversation going. Follow the entertainment on Facebook or Instagram and let us know what you think about how societal attitudes are manifesting in our culture. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and we'd love it if you gave us a review. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from Basic Instinct 2 and God-Created Woman, Punch Drunk Love, and Sanctuary. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.